You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. When we think of pirates in American history, there's perhaps one who stands out, Blackbeard. In the 1800s, sailors whispered his name in fear. The sight of any pirate ship, much less the Queen Anne's Revenge, filled sea merchants with terror. Even 300 years after his death, we can't talk about pirates without mentioning Blackbeard. A lot comes to mind when we think of the fierce rogues of the sea, Plundering merchant ships, cannon fire, sword fighting, and tossing sailors from targeted ships overboard. Then there's the brogues and vernacular, helped along by iconic performances by film actor Robert Newton, who himself portrayed Blackbeard, that inspired Talk Like a Pirate Day. And yet, for all we know about pirates, we're still learning. Blackbeard's origins are a mystery, though most historians agree he was born Edward Teach in Bristol, England, somewhere around 1680. Little is known about his youth, but by the time he was a young adult, international trade had grown into a highly profitable business. And with all that trade came plenty of opportunity for wealth. Unfortunately, wealth didn't trickle down to sailors and other ship hands. In fact, the paying conditions were downright deplorable for most. Working on ships was dangerous business, even without the threat of piracy. There were storms, of course, and illnesses, either from rats and fleas, spoiled food, dysentery, or any number of contagious diseases. Loading merchandise and caring for the ships were labor-intensive. For many, an injury or a bout of sickness meant unemployment. Those who joined the British Army didn't fare much better. Meager pay, little chance of advancement, and poor work and living conditions drove some to look for a better way of life at sea, namely on pirate ships. Those captains knew that a fair wage kept crew members loyal and hardworking. Tired of trying to make a good living honestly, Teach looked to piracy. There were no shortages of opportunity there. With increased trade to the American colonies and ships laden with valuable goods, pirates quickly set up base camps along merchant routes. Teach found a job as a crewmate with Captain Benjamin Hornigold out of the Caribbean in 1716. After working his way up to quartermaster, he soon became captain of his own ship, a six-gun sloop. In 1717, he had two ships and over 70 crew members. British and French vessels made up most of the crew's targets. Blackbeard took their cargo and often released prisoners aboard slavers' ships or took them on as crew. In November of 1717, he took on two ships off the coast of St. Vincent and upgraded his sloop to a 40-gun ship he named the Queen Anne's Revenge and added another 230 men to his crew. Teach was not only good at pirating, but he also excelled at marketing. 
You see, the more fierce and ruthless he appeared to be, the less his crew had to actually fight. To help establish his reputation, he kidnapped and tortured Captain Henry Bostock for a night after raiding his ship. Of course, the terrified hostage reported the ordeal to the governor of what was then St. Christopher Island, a place now known simply as St. Kitts. The report described Teach as a tall and slender man with a long, dark black beard, which spurred the nickname Blackbeard. Sometimes he braided his beard, complete with blood-red ribbons. He wore boots and long, duster-length coats, a large hat, and pistols on each hip. Sometimes he hung slow light matches from his tricorn or his beard, letting the sparks and smoke give him an even more menacing appearance. Perception was everything, and in the thick of battle, such an appearance made others claim he was the devil incarnate. Before long, word about Blackbeard's ferocity traveled all along the coast and American seaboard. Since most of the ships he preyed on delivered goods to the colonies, Ocracoke Island, off the coast of North Carolina, provided the perfect hideaway. It was here that the HMS Pearl tracked down the Queen Anne's Revenge. After a brief battle that saw the demise of 21 crewmen aboard the Pearl, Blackbeard boarded the British ship, believing he had won the battle. He had walked into an ambush. The crew of both ships erupted into hand-to-hand combat. Blackbeard was killed, though it took five gunshots and sword injuries. The Pearl's captain had the pirate's head severed and strung up on the bowsprit, uh, the elongated spar on the bow of the ship. Recently, historians and archivists uncovered new information on Blackbeard. Sure, he'd been a cunning strategist, a respected leader, and one of the most profitable and prolific pirates in his day. But he never personally killed anyone outside of battle. It seems his reputation for murder was undeserved. It should have gone to another group of pirates. Women. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Women were bad luck to have on board. At least, that's what most pirates, including Blackbeard, believed. Anne Bonny thought otherwise, perhaps obviously. Though, if she was the woman doing the raiding, then for members of the targeted ship, the superstition became fact. Her beginnings were as scandalous as her time at sea. She was born Anne Cormick near Cork, Ireland, sometime around 1698. Her father, William, was a lawyer who had married into a great deal of wealth. Any future children between the couple would want for nothing, it seemed. The same couldn't be said of her father, though. He wanted the housemaid, Mary Brennan, and so began their affair. Not long afterward, Mrs. Cormick discovered the betrayal, mostly because the housemaid was pregnant. There were two choices in society then give the child to a foundling home and keep the maid, or keep the child and dismiss the maid. Her father chose neither. Instead, he chose the young maid over his wife. As you might imagine, his wife divorced him for infidelity. William responded by suing his wealthy wife for an allowance to keep him and his pregnant mistress in a certain lifestyle. His lack of decency didn't fare well with his clients, however, and he lost both his wealth and his business. He moved his new family to London, where he tried to start a new law practice. 
He often brought his daughter to work with him, and in an attempt to keep his disgraced past from following him, he dressed her as a boy and told clients she belonged to a relative. When Anne's true parentage and story came to light, William's business failed once more. Now flat broke, the family decided to make a fresh start in the colonies. They settled in Charlestown, later renamed Charleston in what's now South Carolina. As part of their new start, William gave up law for the trading business. The career change paid off, and soon he earned his own wealth. The money allowed him to give his daughter the best education. And to ensure she'd marry well, he insisted she learn to sing, dance, and sew. Anne didn't enjoy having to be very ladylike, much to her father's dismay. It said her temper matched her fiery red hair. When Anne turned 13, her mother died from typhoid. The rift between father and daughter grew increasingly wide over the next few years. There were rumors that Anne took a knife to a servant girl during a disagreement. Other stories say that at 16, she beat an attempted rapist badly enough that he needed medical attention. Anne became even more rebellious in her later teen years. She frequented taverns and didn't abide by society's double standards when it came to relationships. Her reputation took a toll on William's business. In an attempt to save his and his daughter's reputations both, he betrothed her to a local high society man who found her beauty and fiery attitude captivating. Anne didn't like the arrangement much. It's not clear if she tried to set her father's plantation on fire before the betrothment or afterward, or even whether that particular story is true. In any case, needless to say, the engagement was off. In an act of defiance when she turned 20, Anne married James Bonney. He was not only poor, but held a profession in conflict with her father's trading business. You see, James was a pirate. William disowned his daughter after that. The newlyweds moved to Nassau on New Province Island in 1718. The Bahamas was a sanctuary for buccaneers. The English even called it the Republic of Pirates. Anne and James were happy with their marauding lifestyle, right up until a new governor arrived later that year. Woods Rogers made it his mission to rid the Bahamas of its seedy reputation. He convinced James to become an informant. His information led to the capture and hanging of several pirate crews. Anne Bonney had lived by the pirate code that pirates stuck together. Unable to see past her husband's disloyalty, she lost all respect for him. While James spent time with the governor, Anne spent time in the local taverns. There, she met Captain John Rackham, known as Calico Jack for the clothes he wore. He sailed on the sloop named the Ranger, targeting ships between Jamaica and Cuba. He and his men had once abandoned their ship after stealing a Spanish warship. English troops fired their cannons at the Ranger, believing the pirates were still aboard. Meanwhile, Captain Jack and his men casually sailed past them on the Spanish vessel. But like her husband, Calico Jack had since given up piracy and had received a pardon. Unlike her husband, he still held to the code. He didn't work as an informant or turn in his fellow pirates. He was instantly taken by Anne's beauty and disposition. He was equally impressed with the name she'd made for herself as a capable pirate in her own right. A fierce fighter, she proved as good as any man with a pistol or sword. 
Chemistry and a similar style and past drew the two together, and before long they became an item. It didn't take long for James to find out about the affair. Furious, he brought her before the governor, who ordered her whipped for adultery. Calico Jack offered James money if he'd divorce Anne and free her to marry him instead. That didn't go over well, and James threatened to beat the life out of Jack if he set foot near his wife again. But to do that, he would have to catch them first. Since James wouldn't grant Anne a divorce, Calico Jack had a solution. Return to a life of piracy and take Anne with him. And in August of 1720, they hired a crew of their own and stole a sloop with four cannons and two swivel guns. It's not clear if the two renamed the ship or if it was a coincidence, but the sloop bore her father's name, the William. And just like that, Calico Jack and Anne Bonny slipped out of port and set sail for Jamaica. Yes, it was breaking the rules, but Calico Jack didn't care. While most pirates agreed that no women were to be allowed aboard, he was more than happy to have Anne Bonny at his side. She fought as well as any of his men, and beyond that, he loved her deeply. Only one crew member voiced his opinion about having a woman on board. Anne ran a blade through his heart. No one else objected from then on. The superstition was prominent in England and elsewhere, but as Anne pointed out, Viking women had often served alongside the men as raiders. Of course, when caught, they also received the same punishment. Just like their Viking counterparts, the same fate awaited women pirates. While the threat of death and grueling work might have scared most women away, Anne thrived on the adventure. Word of her courage and ferocity spread, making her one of the most feared on the seas. She never withheld that she was a woman, not to the crew, not to the men on the ships they plundered. In battle, Anne kept a sword on one hip, a pistol on the other. She wore a cap to keep her long hair from her eyes, and boots, pants, and a loose tunic that didn't hide her chest. She also delighted in letting any man who challenged her in a duel know that they were about to be bested by a woman. Some stories claim she showed them her breast before running them through. Others say there's no proof of that. She was more than just a superior fighter, though. Taking a page from Blackbeard's methods of intimidation, Anne came up with an idea to scare targets into instant submission. She took a dressmaker's mannequin and strategically applied fake blood. As the William approached their targeted ship, Anne would hold an axe above the fake corpse. If the men aboard the other ship thought women were kind and nurturing, the act terrified them into surrendering their cargo without a fight. Such was the case when the crew came across a Dutch merchant ship near the Caribbean. They raided the ship, and along with the cargo, they took a prisoner, an Englishman named Mark Red. Anne took a liking to the young prisoner and convinced him to join them as part of the crew. The friendship quickly grew between the two, and one night, Anne attempted to seduce him. That's when Mark announced and proved that he was a she. Her real name was Mary Red, and she'd been dressing as a man most all her life. She told Anne how that came to be, and as it turned out, the women shared a similar past. Mary's mother had had an affair and become pregnant with her while her husband was at sea. He died soon after and never learned his wife had a daughter with another man. 
He also didn't know that his own young infant son had also died. Desperate for money, Mary's mother passed her off as her deceased half-brother to keep money coming in from the husband's mother's family. It didn't take long before the truth was discovered, leaving Mary and her mother on their own. When she was young, her mother continued to dress her as a boy, often renting her out as a child servant for extra money. At 13, her mother died, leaving her an orphan. Suitable work for women that also paid a living wage was unheard of, and there was nothing for young girls. So she dressed as a man and applied for work at the docks. Her act successfully fooled the crew of a British man-of-war, and she began work manning the ship's artillery guns. From there, she joined the military and served in both the infantry and cavalry. Not long after, she fell in love with her bunkmate. They left the military and the two wed, choosing to open an inn near Breda, a small town in the southwestern Netherlands. Unfortunately, he died, and Mary had little choice but to find work elsewhere. Disguised as a man again, she found work on a Dutch merchant ship, as it turned out, the very ship Calico Jack had captured. Anne kept Mary's secret. In battle, she was equally as ruthless. The close relationship between the two sparked jealousy with Calico Jack, and one night he confronted Anne and the young sailor. After threatening to cut her new lover's throat, the women told him the truth. Seeing Mary's worth as a pirate, he agreed to keep her on the crew. Throughout the summer of 1720, the pirates continued their raids. They plundered seven fishing boats and two sloops. The women were treated as equals, and Anne led a raid against a schooner. She and Mary fired at the other crew as they boarded, cursing and swearing as they rummaged through the ship. By now, the women had become more famous than their captain. The Boston Globe even ran an article detailing their exploits. They were merciless and cunning, able to best most men in battle. Instead of feeling threatened, though, Calico Jack embraced their fame. He had a flag created and hung on the William in honor of the two, a skull over two crossed swords. The swords represented Anne and Mary. Over 280 years later, that same flag flew on another pirate ship, the Black Pearl, in the movie Pirates of the Caribbean. Throughout the summer of 1720, life was good aboard the William. Anne couldn't have been happier. She had a man she loved, pirating, and a friend, or perhaps more depending on the source, who mirrored her precociousness. Mary also found love with a carpenter aboard the ship. While in port, a pirate challenged him to a duel, and Mary, ever ready for battle, stepped in and ran the challenger through. In September, Woods Rogers declared the crew aboard the William enemies to the crown of Great Britain. And while he usually named male pirates, the Nassau governor specifically called out Anne Bonny and Mary Red. The crew now had a bounty on their heads, and it wouldn't be long before privateers and warships tried to collect the reward. But for Anne, Mary, and the rest of the crew, things were about to go south. They partied all night. On October 22nd, the crew spent most of the evening celebrating near a sand-swept beach in Jamaica. Earlier in the day, they'd come across a smaller ship with nine other pirates aboard. The members of both crews drank rum in earnest, ironically in dry harbor. 
After having their fill, the other pirates moved on. Calico Jack and his crew had had a successful run, and though they had a target on their heads, who felt invincible. Despite the Nassau governor's determination to rid the Caribbean of pirates, the process had been slow. There were somewhere between 500 to 1,000 still in the area, and aside from Anne's husband, few had turned informant. Now, with midnight drawing near, Anne and Mary sat alone on the deck. The men were sleeping off their overindulgence in the hammocks and beds below. The women didn't think the entire crew getting drunk had been the best of ideas. With everyone inebriated, they were vulnerable to attack. Their worst fears were realized when they caught a glimpse of a large sloop approaching in the darkness. They called out for the men, but none replied. Within minutes, Anne and Mary realized the other ship wasn't another pirate's or a merchant's vessel. The sloop belonged to the Jamaican governor's fleet. The women concluded that an informant must have seen them drop anchor earlier and gone straight to the authorities. Pirates weren't the only ones who knew that ambushing ships at night had a strong advantage. The women shouted down to the men again. This time, a few responded, including Calico Jack. By the time they'd staggered to the deck, the other sloop had pulled alongside them. The captain, Jonathan Barnett, hailed them, asking for the name of their leader. Calico Jack told the truth. Captain Rackham from Cuba. Barnett shouted back, ordering the pirates to surrender. The other sloop was bigger, but in his drunken stupor, Calico Jack might have thought that just made it a larger target. Without a word, he answered Barnett's request by firing a swivel gun at them. Not drunk, and with more cannons, Barnett returned fire, taking out the Williams boom. Feeling outgunned, outnumbered, and probably still too drunk to fight, Calco Jack signaled his surrender and called to quarter. Without any resistance, his equally intoxicated men followed orders. There was a problem, though. Anne and Mary refused to go down without a fight. They could die standing as pirates or die hanging. The women chose to keep on their feet. With the William disabled, Barnett's men boarded. Anne and Mary drew their swords and stood back to back, covering each other. They fought off all attempts to subdue them. The few crewmates on deck, too drunk to do much, were instantly overtaken. Disgusted with the men's lack of assistance, Mary shouted down into the hold for the rest of the crew, saying that if there was any men among them, they'd come up and fight like men. When one finally managed to clamber up the stairs to see why there was so much yelling, Mary shot and killed him. Barnett's men overwhelmed the women and arrested them with the rest of the crew. Before daybreak, the pirates found themselves behind bars at Spanish Town, Jamaica, awaiting trial. The nine other men who'd been drinking with the crew of the William had also been caught and were tried. Six were executed. The fate of the remaining three is unknown. As for the rest of Anne and Mary's crew, they pled guilty to piracy and were sentenced to hang. The women, however, pleaded not guilty to the charge of piracy. They claimed that although they had accompanied the crew, they weren't pirates. By law, their plea earned them a trial. British knight and Jamaican governor Nicholas Laws, who Captain Barnett worked for, would preside as one of the judges. The trial began with testimony from a schooner captain who'd had the misfortune of beating the crew of the William. 
According to him, the women were not only on board, they had led the men in raiding his ship. Two Frenchmen testified next. They had been hunting boar off Hispaniola Island when the pirates kidnapped them. Both identified Anne and Mary as part of that crew. The women weren't passively traveling with the pirates, they said. During their captivity, they'd witnessed both women supply the men with gunpowder and join them on raids. They told the judges the women weren't forced or detained and had kept company with the pirates of their own free will. A third witness said he and his crew were attacked and brought aboard the William. He noted that Anne wore a pistol. Both women, he said, swore as much as any of the crew and appeared willing to do anything asked of them. After robbing them of their personal effects, the pirates had put them back on shore and stolen his ship. Finally, a woman took the stand. She'd been in a canoe filled with provisions. Calico Jack and his men had stolen everything she owned. She, too, identified Anne and Mary as being part of that crew. The women had worn trousers and bandanas around their heads and carried machetes, she told the court. After the crew had robbed her, the women had sworn at the men, encouraging them to kill her so that she couldn't testify against them later. The judges asked Anne and Mary if they had any witnesses. No, they responded. Judge Laws asked if they had anything to say that the court might use to spare their lives. Again, they answered that they did not. Laws called the trial to a close, announcing that Anne and Mary would be hung by the neck until dead. The women were tossed back into jail to await the gallows. But soon enough, the women discovered there was something that might spare them. They were both pregnant. Before his execution, Calico Jack asked for one last thing, to see Anne a final time. The court obliged and guards led her to his cell. She stood calmly, telling him she was truly sorry that he was there. She was sorry they were all there, really, and it was his fault. The story goes that she told him, if you'd fought like a man, you wouldn't hang like a dog, before walking off. On November 18th of 1720, Calco Jack hung for his crimes of piracy in Port Royal. After the hanging, his body was enclosed in a cage and placed in public view. Called gibbeting, the practice was meant to discourage others from piracy. Today, the location of his execution is named after him, Rackham's Cay. Within days, the rest of the men of the crew met the same fate. Anne and Mary's announcement that they were quick with child caused a delay in determining the date of their executions. After an examination, the pregnancies were confirmed. The court agreed to delay their executions until they gave birth. The women couldn't leave the jail, though, and conditions for childbirth were less than sterile. Mary Red became ill and died from complications during childbirth on April 28th of 1721. Some historians believe that she and her child are buried somewhere in Jamaica, though no official records exist. There's also no record of Anne Bonny's execution. No records exist of her release, either. While it's a mystery what really happened, there are theories. Some believe she died of disease on December 29th of 1733 while still waiting for her execution. But there's another theory. The merchant ships in Jamaica traveled extensively 
to South Carolina. Word of her capture and pending execution may have reached her wealthy father, who had plenty of influence in the trade business. Or he might have paid to have her smuggled out of prison and brought back to the colonies. From there, Anne Bonny may have moved to Virginia and married. And some tales say she had six children and lived a long life, never again returning to the sea, and eventually dying an old woman, with plenty of tales to tell. There's an old saying that goes something like this, you are in death as you are in life. And for Anne Bonny, it couldn't have been more true, because she was a legend in both. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. In 1760, Rachel Schmidt was born in Pennsylvania to devout Presbyterians. Her parents were farmers, and like most others in the trade, they barely made enough money to make ends meet. Open fields, crops, and livestock didn't interest Rachel, though. According to her journal, she left home at 16 in search of a more exciting life. Rachel soon fell in love with the water and spent much of her time around Lake Erie Harbor. But a group of local girls didn't like the farm girl newcomer and attacked her. A young man named George Wall saw the assault and rescued her, and so began their romance. Rachel became smitten with the young fisherman, 
and despite her family's concerns, the two soon married. They left Pennsylvania and traveled to New York for a while before settling down in Boston. There, George took a job on a fishing schooner. While he was out at sea, Rachel earned money working as a maid on Beacon Hill. Her husband became friends with his crewmates, and she became friends with their wives. Though she missed him during his fishing trips, she wrote in her journal that she lived a contented life. After one of his trips, George convinced her to leave her job and come with him and five other sailors. He could make more money raiding ships than working on them, he explained. She agreed, and the group stole a ship named the Essex in 1781. Such a small ship and crew would hardly intimidate anyone, so they needed a different plan. What they came up with was simple, yet brilliant. The crew sailed around the shoals just after bad weather. There, they would disguise the Essex to appear as though it had been damaged in the storm. Rachel would stand on the deck all alone and call to passing ships for help. Seeing a young, pretty damsel in distress worked flawlessly. Sailors were more than happy to come to her rescue. Once the other ship would dock to the Essex, the men would rush up from below deck and subdue the would-be rescuers. The ploy was so successful that the small band of pirates robbed 12 ships and netted over $6,000 worth of merchandise. That's about $115,000 today. And if you're wondering how only five men could overpower a larger ship's crew, they didn't. After taking the men by surprise, they killed them. If the ship appeared to have too many men aboard, the pirates pretended to be passengers on the ill-fated Essex and waited until night to raid the ship and dispatch the crew members. During a storm in 1782, George made a poor navigation error, and the Essex capsized. Only a couple of the crew survived, Rachel being one of them. George wasn't so lucky. He drowned. Without a ship or captain, the survivors went back to Boston. Rachel returned to work as a maid. She struggled to earn enough to live on, and so returned to a life of crime. She stole from docked ships in the harbor and their sailors. She was arrested several times for petty theft, once after stealing from Perez Morton, a revolutionary patriot and good friend of John Adams. She wrote that during the spring of 1898, she snuck on board a ship at Long Wharf. While the captain and mate slept, she hunted for items of value. She found a black silk handkerchief under the captain's head, plus several crowns and other coins, as well as gold. Her reputation for theft at the docks grew, making it harder to get away undetected. One incident turned deadly, and Rachel decided to steer clear of the harbor for a while. On March 18th of 1789, she was arrested for a crime she claimed to have never committed, stealing from a 17-year-old woman during a highway robbery. Margaret, the young victim, claimed that Rachel stole her bonnet, shoes, and buckles before beating her and trying to rip out her tongue. She pleaded innocent to that crime, but finally admitted to her acts of piracy, though she insisted she'd never killed anyone. It's unclear how the court tied her to piracy, unless they read her journal, of course. She was found guilty of her crimes and sentenced to death by hanging. On Thursday, October 8th of 1789, Rachel stood at the gallows on Boston Common. Before a crowd of thousands who had come to watch a female pirate hang, she issued a word of warning. Don't follow in my footsteps, she said. 
In her final words, Rachel committed her soul to God and asked for his mercy. As the executioner placed the noose over her head, she told the crowd she would die an unworthy member of the Presbyterian Church. Aside from being one of the few American women to become a pirate, Rachel Ward was also the last woman to be hanged in Massachusetts. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmandMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.